0: You are listening to the DFJ Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and videos of these lectures online at ecorner.stanford.edu. Today's guest is a super special guest for me. Brendan Boyle is a partner at IDEO, and he is in charge of the Toy Lab. Now, what could be more fun than that? actually being in charge of inventing toys. And since I get a chance to interview him today, we're going to dive right in. So welcome, Brendan.
1: Thank you, and it's great to be here. And a Shout out to the back row, the people in the back <laughs> row. They're, they're really, yeah, they're there, okay. <laughs> <laughs> they're MSE, okay. Okay, All well,
0: right. I have to say, it sounds like a lot of fun. Mm-hmm. Is it fun or is it hard work? Can you give us a snapshot of what life is like? working all day, toiling away, designing toys.
1: So we're, uh, I'm a toy inventor. That's my uh, profession. I also teach over at the D, D school. We'll, we'll get into that. But uh, it's a lot of effort. Let's put it that way. But it's what we call fit. If you find something you really like doing, you're, you're going to keep doing it. So it's a lot of effort, but it feels um, creatively satisfying. So you enjoy doing it. Versus fun might be like, oh, it's fun to go to the beach, right? I, I have no problem with that. But it's like, uh, if you find something you really are engaged in, for us, this is um, what my class is about, around play behaviors. It's around really getting into it and sort of losing yourself in time. Uh, And and, yeah, and it is crazy, it's a crazy industry. It's a really tough way to make a living. I I would, it's a challenging way to make a
0: living. So, okay, so explain (laughs) to us, this is a bunch of people who are really interested in entrepreneurship and innovation, and clearly designing toys is an entrepreneurial endeavor. Can you tell us a little bit about the funnel? I know there's a really interesting yeah. funnel of going yeah. from ideas to actually seeing a product on the shelf. So,
1: I, I started the toy lab with a, a fantastic woman named Fern Mandelbaum, and she's a Stanford person also. And uh, we left, uh, each left our respective companies, and I had 10 ideas, and, and three of them were in the toy world. And we thought we were going to start a toy company, like a manufacturer like Mattel or Hasbro or Moose or Spinmaster. Uh, Then we start asking questions like like you guys are doing if you're a good entrepreneur You have that sort of license to ask questions when you're starting people really want to help out And we discovered this whole world of there are some really professional firms around toy invention where you come up So my life is around in my team. I'll use the word I a lot But it's a team now and it's a pretty good sized team IDEO 650 folks So I say that's my team, but I have 10 dedicated folks in in the toy lab Uh, so we come up with ideas, then we have to prototype them, build them, get them to work, and then we pitch them. So we spend a fair amount of our time with an inventor's hat, a fair amount of time with a builder's hat, and this can be physical or digital stuff, and then a fair amount of time with a sales hat, trying to uh, get people to buy so we can keep doing what we're doing because you know, we like it. But
0: So <clears> you <throat> talked about the sort of idea, yeah. the yeah. building, mm-hmm. the selling. How many ideas do you have? Yeah, all How right, many of those do you build? Yeah, back to
1: your funnel. So <laughs> uh, I like to say... I've probably failed more than anyone in this room, because our funnel is a lot of ideas that don't make it. So I'm really, people say, you know, get comfortable with failure. I'm, I guess I'm pretty comfortable with failure. So we'll probably have, um, Bob Sutton uh, did some numbers on our group a while ago. It was like 4,000 ideas a year, just ideas, like something on a post-it, maybe a little sketch. And out of that 400 were probably rendered, 50 or 60 prototyped. Uh, we probably sell five or six, and hopefully two two or three make money. So it's a, it's a, it's a, so it's a lot of notes, But a, every idea we have, we kind of think is really cool. And then a lot of people don't. <laughs> so,
0: Do you go back and revisit <clears throat> the ones that have been thrown away? We'll go away? back and
1: we'll look at the prototypes, so those ones that have, we've invested in and see if there's a way, maybe they're a little bit before their time or maybe there's a way to uh, rework them uh, so they'll be a little more relevant. Uh, so, yeah, some, we keep a whole database of everything and, and some ideas we can sell right away, some, some ideas that might take six or seven years, right? So.
0: Well, so that's what I was going to ask. How long is that process, right? If you're going from four thousand to four hundred to forty? Well,
1: uh, yeah. Is Hopefully, that's that's a year. That's a years? year. That's a year process. Okay. <laughs> a day process. That's yes, a long. That's a long ass day. <laughs> Sorry. Um. That's a long day. So no, that's a year process. Uh, but we've been doing this for twenty years, so we have a lot of things what we would call in the vault, ideas in the vault. Hopefully, they're still good, and maybe we can sell them someday.
0: So this is a, interesting. So you've got this process. Is everyone moving in sync through this process? Or do you have a lot of things that are starting up all the time? So you constantly have new ideas, constantly new prototypes, or is there sort of a year schedule that you Yeah, if you through? look
1: at our like um, production line, it would be yeah. ideas. So we, we have a two or three brainstorms a week, and that might be the farm, mm-hmm. right, what we're growing. And then there's people who are dedicated on projects they're really excited about. If we're building something robotic, like a really cool dinosaur or something with six motors in it. Um, <laughs> that's what we're working on. Keep it a secret. Um, uh, that's going to take a lot of time to work on that and get, get everything right. So, uh, and so we're investing heavy in something like that.
0: That's so cool. So I love the fact that you have several brainstorms a week. Mm-hmm. As someone who loves brainstorming, that just sounds wonderful. How do you actually frame each of those brainstorms? Do you come in and just say, hey, what ideas do you have? Or do you go, we're looking at a dinosaur toy, or we're looking at a car toy?
1: Yeah, if you've taken a school class or you're involved in design methodology or this class, you'll quickly understand it's what are the insights. What, something has to be around insights. So we spend a lot of time... Uh, going into kids' homes, talking to moms and dads, and interviewing and observing, being kind of the, uh, what Tom Kelly calls the modern-day anthropologist, sort of seeing what's happening, seeing behaviors. If you can take a behavior and put that into something, then it's going to resonate, um, which is really cool. Can I show you a toy to yeah. show, show up oh, some yeah, behavior? Okay. So, sure. um, This is a <clears> – <throat> I brought some toys, guys. This is a <clears> – <throat> this is a – Everyone might know or might not know the property Dusty, which is a Pixar property. Dusty is a plane. It's kind of like the car's property. But he's afraid of heights. So he's basically an RC car uh, for three-year-olds. So he doesn't really fly. So he goes on the ground. And a, a three-year-old, if you give him a remote control, they don't know what they're doing. They're just, right? So, But how does a three-year-old pretend they're flying? Can you guys act it out? Can everyone act it out together? Yeah. So, <laughs> So we took that behavior... And then we give him these little wings. And then then when he tilts this way, he goes that way. And then he tilts this way, and it goes that way. I got a big wingspan. A little three-year-old behind it is pretty cute. So
0: (laughs) that's so fun. So how did you come up with that idea? Or how did your group come up with
1: it? By watching kids. And then someone was pretending they're flying and and remembering they did it themselves and said, how do we incorporate that into a toy? Um, And then the way we prototyped that was we had that and someone behind the curtain driving yeah, it. When yeah. the kid did this, we turned it that way. So that saved us some money on the prototyping. Well, so.
0: I love that <laughs> idea.
1: But and then once we sold it, then we had to make it work, right? So,
0: But that's what's really cool. And I'm so fascinated with the way you do that is do these really, really quick and dirty, inexpensive prototypes that test whether a concept will work without actually spending any money or even putting any technology into it. So, talk about that process. That's
1: a, a real tenet of IDEO. It's a real tenet of the D School. It's like high fidelity thinking, low fidelity prototyping. Because you want to, rough and rapid, to get the idea out there so you can learn from it, not test to validate. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, get it out there to learn from it and so you can make it better. For those of you who will start running companies someday, what you want is when you're CEO to have that sort of um, ability to squint and see the real thing through a rough and rapid model. Because we see so many cultures that the model prototype has to be beautiful before they show it to the, to the CEO or management, because they're going, what's this piece of crap? You know? And then your whole culture then understands, ooh, we got to make it look good, and they're wasting all this time.
0: Right, and of so, course I understand in that situation, you're much less likely to get feedback. Yeah, you exactly. now are fully committed to something that might not work. So doing these really quick prototypes is really valuable.
1: It's a culture. It's a culture thing. And you can do that physical or digital, um, you love the example <laughs> where we were working with Sesame Street we were, we were, we've done a whole bunch of apps with Sesame Street digital toys and uh, we were trying to figure out how Elmo does his dance and Sesame's in New York my team's here and we didn't want to do any program yet so the team had a clever idea they plotted out a, a phone uh, iPhone like this big and then glued it to a foam core, cut the hole out, and then acted out the scene with a live actor behind it. The inter- the interaction was someone touching, you touch this button, and Elmo dances like this. And we could do that and then shoot a video of that in a morning. We went back forth three or four times before we had to do any software. So that was a really low-fidelity way to do digital, too, which
0: is cool. Yeah, I love that. I think that it's called Monster Maker, mm-hmm. right? And uh, I love the fact that in a really short time, without any technology, basically no money, and... Uh, you were able to really get some great feedback on the concept. Yeah. Great. So one of the things that's super interesting about toys is that they often foreshadow the technology that we're going to be adapting as adults Mm -hmm. in our lives. How do you try to anticipate what's going to be happening in the real world and then adapt that to toys?
1: Yeah. Well, my team's really lucky because Ideal's working in almost every industry. So we can see what's happening in... Transportation, and we can see what's happening in consumer products, and we can see what's happening in health. Uh, so it's interesting. So we did a, um, a three hundred dollar Barbie Hello Dream House that was out this Christmas. Three hundred bucks. Um, that's good if you're in Denver. It's a lot of royalty. So, um, uh, but uh, so it's a smart dream house. Like it's a, all this cool smart technology in it. And we, we've been working on smart houses for a long time at IDEO, but for like billionaires and, or other, you know, other types of po- folks. And and all this sort of beha- stuff like the Nest and other stuff is pr- um, sort of recognizing your behavior versus programming. No one wants to program. So we put all this kind of same kind of thinking into this cool Barbie house that's awesome. It was on Jimmy Fallon, which was really funny.
0: So see, how really, it's not expensive. I can get a whole house for uh, yeah, $300. You get a whole house
1: for 300 bucks, try that in Palo Alto somewhere. Right? <laughs> Put it on a piece of land.
0: Yeah, well, so that's an interesting point, is that for $300, I can get a real house. Is Do you use this actually as a way to test concepts for real products in the real world? I mean, are toys a foreshadowing? Toys, yeah, toys
1: is kind of a foreshadowing because... Uh, I think pretty fast in the marketplace and a lot of technology finds its way in toys in a hurry like RFID was in toys in a hurry uh, different colored LEDs were in toys in a hurry just because toys don't last long you buy a refrigerator it's going to be there for 15 years so the technology is it's hard to sort of keep updating on that in a hurry but toys have such a short life and they're a lot of them are physical so you'll see this technology in there which is pretty interesting
0: very cool. So, can you tell us a little bit about the relationship you have with the manufacturers? Who I assume are also the distributors, right? So, yeah. So, so what, we what's have great relationship? uh,
1: long-term relationships with Mattel and Hasbro and Fisher Price and any of the big toy companies. Moose and who's got kids out here? Anybody? So. <laughs> Uh, if you have a three-year-old or a five-year-old daughter, you know what Shopkins is, which is, if uh, not, it's are a... you the guy? No. <coughs> but, but I know the guy, uh, but it's, it's a brand that went from zero to almost a billion dollars. We, we do have a Shopkins item called the, the Shopkins Tall Mall. It's like a dream house for... Um, but, uh, yeah, so we have... These are long-term relationships. These are our customers, so mm-hmm. to speak, and and it's a little bit... There's always tension there because they, Mattel, has huge design department, they, you know. Um, but the market uh, forces are such that they're about a third of all new toys are licensed from the outside. Because the toy industry's been looking outside for ideas a lot longer than other industries. Um, sort of a little bit of open innovation, but with known innovation partners, like, like my company and others. Um, so it's, it's interesting, because they can't tell you exactly what they want, because they'd tell their own team. But they're looking, mm-hmm. and you start to understand you start to get some really good institutional knowledge. Like I've been visiting these guys for twenty years, so I, I have a history and know their history and know their product line and kind of know where they should be fishing, so
0: to speak. So, are the toy manufacturers and distributors like Mattel? Mm-hmm. Are they like venture capitalists? That there, you go in and pitch them, and it's then mu- they say yes, yes, no. Or no,
1: it kind of. It's much more like a. Screenplay, or royalty deal, mm-hmm. uh, you know, they'll publish your work, so to speak. Uh-huh. Uh, uh, you know, If you're an author, you'll get a royalty on a book. Uh, although people care who wrote a book, they don't necessarily care if, if IDEO invented a toy or not, unfortunately. But
0: <laughs> yeah, but they might say, I want something. But like it's, a, long, it's a long-term
1: relationship. So it's, um, I got some really good advice from an inventor when I first started. He said, it's, it's important you sell something, but it's more important you get invited back to the meeting. So... Because if you don't get invited back, you're not going to have a you're not going to have a sustainable business. Because if you go in and, and burn your bridges on one deal, you know, go through it.
0: Do you find that you're often working on the same projects, the type of things that they are, and yeah. so you have sort of intellectual <clears throat> property issues?
1: Uh huh. Exactly. It's a it's a relationship built on long-term trust. So if they say we're working on something very similar, we'll take their word for it, uh, because. They're not going to try to rip us off because there's a tension they want us to come back to, right? So, um, but it, we all see the same things in the market place. We were exposed to similar ideas and sometimes things are-
0: um, Everyone, right, the same yeah. ideas bubble up to the yeah, top. Exactly. Okay, so let's go back into the lab where you're designing all this. What makes something fun?
1: Yeah, that's a really uh, interesting question. It, it has to have an element of surprise, of delight. It has to meet some kind of... Um, it's best if it's based on some kind of insight, and the insight could just be it wants to be fun, right? But that's, mm-hmm. uh, you know, like the plane had, had that sort of element of magic because it felt like yeah. you're, you're actually flying. Uh, this is... Let me show you another toy. <clears throat> this is a... Uh, you haven't jumped to failure yet, but I'm going to jump to a failure yeah, story. This, this is one of my earlier products. This is... Um, this is a baseball bat, for those of you listening online. It's just a kid's baseball bat, and it was called Grand Slam Bubble Bat. You hit this button, and there's a mechanism in here, and out came a bunch of baseball-sized bubbles, and then you smashed them, right? Like, well, pretty pretty clever idea. Yeah, that's kind of I thought that was great. <laughs> <laughs> so um, this is early in my career. I'm at Mattel in a conference room, well, I think it was my, one of my first meetings with them. there were five or six execs there, and they're all sitting there looking pretty formal back when people wore suits. And I, I'm hitting the button. There's a mechanism here, and it's not working. It, I'm feeling like, oh, no. So I just tried to jiggle it, and I swing it. And it just threw bubble stuff out and laced, <laughs> laced them laced them across the suits, right? And they, and they looked at me like, are you goofing on me? I, 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 also, I, I was like, uh, that was a huge failure. Um, <laughs> I was very polite and wrote them each uh, a message. Sorry, no, so I got invited back. Um, I went back and fixed it, yeah. uh, and then uh, we sold it to another company, and it, it came out and had a really cool commercial. It was doing really well. And then there's, uh, I think it's Roger... I forget his name, but it was a lawyer who once a year put out the 10 most dangerous toys. Oh, <laughs> no. And the bubble bat was number five on the list. for the, And that killed sales on the on the bubble bat. So that product failed twice. When uh, you design
0: something and you pitch it, yeah. have there been any that have been picked up that you have been totally surprised by their <clears throat> success? I mean, this is you were sort of surprised that people didn't love it instantly, but... Uh, yeah, no,
1: he... You never know until the scorecard's out and it's in the marketplace. Like they, Some people may love it and, and it's got a ton of uh, tooling and advertising and then it still does, it doesn't do well, right? So that's always surprising. Uh, or it's like, wow, this did like five times better than we thought it did, uh, which is great. But it, it, I used to get, it's such a roller coaster. I used to really go up and down on that. Now I think I'm, because I'm older, I'm just a little more steady.
0: <laughs> do, you, do you think that market <clears throat> timing plays a big role in kids' toys? I mean, it certainly does with you know, consumer electronics. You yeah. know, it has to be the right time. How, how does timing fit? Well, timing is, definitely
1: fits, because if you're in this industry, it's fourth quarter, and everything, it's like 70% of your sales are fourth quarter. So if you're missing Christmas, you're missing out, right? Okay. Like, so that's so, timing in the year. Timing in the year. Timing otherwise is like, yeah, if you're uh, right now... Skill and action, low-cost games. Has anyone seen Pie Face? Anyone played Pie Face? <laughs> it's a crazy game. But it's 20 bucks, and it smacks a pie at you. And it, uh, <laughs> it actually was out in the 60s, and then someone brought it back. But uh, there's a sort of a trend around getting family away from screen time and playing a, a fun game like this. So there are all sorts of these things out now. And if you're chasing, chasing those kind of ideas now, it's too late, because you've got to be thinking, yeah. what's two years out, three years out? Um, so some of it is definitely there's luck, but there's luck if you're really working hard, hard on these things.
0: So let's go back further into, your, into mm-hmm. the design process mm-hmm. and the brainstorming. A lot of people say brainstorming doesn't work and they try to do brainstorming and they're not successful. What makes brainstorming in your group successful?
1: Yeah, that's a really great question. And if you, th- if you back off of brainstorming a little bit and think of um, the design process. There's inspiration, so you got to get inspired, see something your competitors aren't seeing. Then there's ideation. Take what you saw, it's framed up somehow into an opportunity, a strategy, and then, ide- and then ideation. And brainstorming is just one technique. I mean, you good. could have a technique where you get good ideas in the shower. That's just not very repeatable. You have to run home or tell your boss. I'm. Going and use to- a lot of water. Yeah, use a lot of water. <laughs> um, but for us, brainstorming is a really great tool that we know how to use. So, I think it gets a bad rap because people who just read the rules and try it once don't actually know how to do it. it it's like, um, it's, I think it's Sutton's, or maybe it's your analogy around if you put four people in a room and they know how to play musical instruments, they can jam pretty well. But if you put four people who don't know how to play, it's not going to sound very good <laughs> at all, right? So, if you are practiced at brainstorming, you understand it, you're going to get better at it. It's a, it's a muscle. <clears throat> the, if you think about ideation, too, is divergent thinking. How, how wide can you go versus converging? And we are so good, everyone in this room is probably so good at converging thinking. Because you didn't get to, into Stanford, you didn't get your, all these degrees without converging and making decisions and understanding how to get to the answer in a hurry. Divergent thinking is just like, how do you keep your brain going wide and ridiculous ideas and all sorts of crazy ideas? Because that's where you're going to find a good idea. Uh, if you're really close to being ridiculous, it's probably could be brilliant, otherwise it's just okay. So getting in that mode, uh, and then there's confusion around folks and creative people are only divergent, they're just constantly like, no, they know when to turn it on and when to turn it off, versus too many people go a little bit and then, then close, a little bit and then close. So. Uh,
0: well see, that's one of the big problems, right? If you're, if you're actually evaluating the ideas yeah, yeah. too early, you kill them. Can you, can you talk about how you get people ready for a brainstorming session yeah. where they can be as prepared for divergent so, thinking as possible? So we,
1: when we bring in new folks, we sort of indoctrinate them a little bit at a time. So you put them in with a bunch of good brainstormers so they see that behavior and they know how it's working. Uh, so that's one way. We, before we go into the brainstorming, you have to have your question. It's all around the right question. So we've got the insights. We've got the question. But we'll do a lot of list making. A lot of list making gets your brain just rapid fire. So a lot of list making, and then we'll...
0: Uh, well can, can Just double click on that. What, <coughs> give me an example of a list. Uh, uh,
1: if we're doing a... Let's say we're inventing a car for travel plane, car, you know, transportation, yeah. so uh, what, do, what do people do on planes? Uh, you know, types of play, all these kind of things, just list, list, right, uh, what do kids do for fun, what, you know, what's, what do kids do that's stupid? Just what, how do you do this list in a hurry? Uh, that sort of gets your brain sort of rapid firing. Uh, then we'll discover something that works really well. Uh, then we'll, ha- we'll say, let's do a couple minutes of heads down time, sketch up two or three ideas. We're huge Post-it users, by the way. It's just because um, people come in and think, you guys are nuts. But it's a way you can cluster and theme. So then we'll do a couple minutes of heads down time to sketch up two or three ideas, which is we found really good for some of the introverts, so they can get some ideas down. And then people start to share, then riff and build off them.
0: So that's really interesting. I was going to ask you about the, the trade-off between individual time mm-hmm. and team time. Um, do you find that when people brainstorm by themselves and then come back, that they're very wedded to their own idea? or No,
1: if, if we don't give much time for that. It's just like to get a few ideas out of your head okay. right away, and then we're all going to build on okay. it. Okay. And we're very clear at a brainstorm to... Let anyone new in the room know that these ideas are all the group's ideas. So they wouldn't exist if everyone wasn't here, right? Like it's not just one musician in the band, it's everyone, right? So, every, so we're careful not to call that Tina's idea or Brenda's idea. We'll number the ideas so you can go to the numbers. And then we'll have a little mini goal, let's get 50 ideas. And that flips, flips everything around people's heads.
0: So obviously a brainstorming session is only good as the brains in the room. What type of people do you have on your team? <clears throat>
1: Uh, a lot of industrial designers, but uh, mechanical engineers, computer science, a lot of technical folks, and then the design researchers. But we at IDEO and the D School look for what we call T-shaped people. They have a real depth in one area. So that might be design. It might be uh, computer science. But they love to. You know, they love. They're interested in the other disciplines. So they're really interested in design research. So they play well. If you think more of an eye shaped person, it's more of a guru. They only want to do their stuff and they get kind of grumpy if if they're talking about other people's stuff. The gurus can be great, but they're just not uh, fit for our culture.
0: Do you invite them in? Do you invite people (coughs) to participate?
1: Well, we'll interview gurus like crazy because they're experts and they're extreme, so you want to know what they're thinking. But they're not necessarily right for our culture.
0: Great. Does everybody on these teams have to be able to build Something, do they all have to be able to... In the to? toy
1: group, they, they have to be able to build, whether it's physical or digital. They have to be able to make something tangible. Uh, so a lot of folks are... There's it's a lot of sort of misconception around ideas where it's all in your head, and then you just have to give it to someone else. There's a lot of what we call thinking with your hands. So as you're building, you're designing, and creating at the same time, the brain gets way too much credit. The hands, should get just as much credit, because... Um, uh, it's, it's sort of informing your decision and making things happen and, and discovering things and inventions as you go. so.
0: Super. So um, how do you manage a group of creative people like this? I mean, I imagine you get a bunch of folks who have lots of independent ideas. How do you... What, what type of culture do you create and how do you manage that group?
1: <clears throat> yeah, I was on a panel once with... Um, and a similar question came up. I was on a panel with a Navy SEAL the captain of the America's Cup, and the president of Sonus, the founder of Sona's, And the audience asked me, he said, what do you do from your teams to keep them from burning out? And I, I looked at the seal and I said, this is the guy who can answer that question. And he, and he said, they're burned out when they fall over. So it was just like, <laughs> 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 all right, well, uh, we don't burn our guys out that much. Um, no, you look for, oh, so we'll brainstorm, and then we'll look for uh, ideas that we want to, we'll kind of do a, a vote or, or some, some editing from the senior mm-hmm. folks is what we think has more potential. And then if, we'll look for who's really passionate around trying to make that come to life. And that mm-hmm. might be one person pointing it. If it's a robotics person, someone, we, we've got that person on our team, they're gonna be really jazzed about that. If it's some, some type of fashion doll and it's gotta be um, beautiful and all this, we've got that kind of person. So we'll have people different point but other folks then will come in and help because they're excited about learning on something. That's really neat about any organization if it's framed up the right way, if it's a learning organization, because you want, personally you want to learn something new, a new skill, a new talent. So we have that sort of mindset around learning. So you think you're in school and that's, once you're out, you're done learning, it should be, you should always have that sort of appetite to keep learning because it's more creatively satisfying.
0: So I know that you're really passionate also about space Mm -hmm. and how the physical space affects the way you think, the way you behave. Can you describe the space (coughs) that you guys have designed? I know it's gone through lots of iterations. So maybe you could (coughs) share a little bit about how the space has been designed and how it's changed over time and and why.
1: Yeah, space is, for those who own companies or already do, it's one of the most underutilized resources uh, for innovation, because people just lay it out and they don't think about it, or they just what looks cool or what's cost effective. Uh, so it's, it doesn't have to be expensive, it just has to help your behavior. So we have a lot of space in the Toy Lab or at IDEA or at the D School, what we call the we space. How do we work together better? So there's a lot of project spaces uh, versus the me space, which is my office. I want it quiet, I want a view. That's not important to us. All the action for our our new folks is not about an office. In fact, there's almost no offices. They're about, where's my project space? What are my tools? Who's on my team? Uh, So we want to have tons of interesting project spaces. Uh, We had a team working for um, Fender Guitar at at IDEO, and they were um, worried that the musicians would be too cool. So they they brainstormed and they thought, and they found an old Airstream down in Santa Barbara. So they drove down there, got it, brought it up, gutted it, and made it into their project space. So that uh, looks really cool now. So uh, <laughs> It so, fit the bill. Yeah, it fit the bill. But, um, yeah, so in, in the toy lab, it's definitely a maker space. They, their project bench, uh, sort of these super cool project toy lab benches that... It's got every tool you need there. There's a little mini shop there, even though the big shop's 200 yards away. But it's, and then our digital team sits right there in in that space too. Our design for play team sits right in that space. So it's a lot of action happening there. Um,
0: What about (coughs) prototyping materials? Do you have any, what? what Yeah, we have a
1: a wall. I think I've got $15,000 of container store um, drawers there of all different stuff, all labeled by materials, mechanisms. we have and literally we have this. There's because we're working on a lot of Barbie, There's super good Barbies. There's good Barbies, there's distressed Barbies, and there's Barbie parts. So, um.
0: <laughs> Well, I'll tell you, and when I was not a her kid, mental
1: yeah, stage. Yeah, that's it's so <clears throat>
0: funny, because when I was a kid, my, my uncle worked in a toy store, and he used to give us, bring us bags of Barbie heads. Oh, that's <laughs> so scary. I could, uh, <laughs> I could loan them to you. Uh. But uh, So you have all these parts. Do you use them for inspiration? Oh, and we
1: use them for tinkering, so you have stuff. So you can grab something yeah. and make something, make one of those low-fidelity, rough-and-rapid models. So... You don't want to be wasting a lot of time going out and finding stuff when, when you kind of c- can collect it. Um,
0: so I know you're teaching a class here that you've taught for many years on no. play to innovation. Can, maybe you can tell us a little bit about how you teach this. And I don't know, maybe some folks in the room will get inspired to try some of these ideas. Yeah, so th-
1: thank you. It's in the spring. It's the D School. This class is about 35. This is about as big as class we can take. Oh, and a few years ago, I started setting the class each day in a circle. I think you might do the same. So if you think back to kindergarten, you're in a circle, and you're in a circle, and I discovered this way, everyone's in the front row, and there's no sort of checking out in the back. So there's eye contact with everyone. It's really hard to be on your device checking that out. Um, <clears throat> so that's what kindergartner teachers do. So, um, the, and then you can reconfigure if you're doing projects and other things like that. But... Um, the, Class. You want to know about the class? Yeah. So the class overall is this intersection of play and innovation and how important that is. And, and play sort of has a PR problem. Most people think, uh, most adults think play is frivolous or, or they think it's for kids. Most companies think at best play is um, break time, foosball, ping pong table, and those, those are great. Nothing wrong with foosball, ping pong, a break. But for me, play is engagement. It's, it's, are you focused, are you excited, are you, uh, and I, we've talked about this just in the beginning, it's intrinsic, it, it's built into us. We want this satisfaction. So uh, the, kind of the two biggest reasons uh, we come to work are purpose and play. And there's now a lot of science happening around play, kind of where the science of sleep was 30 years ago, about how important sleep is now. No one sort of doubts the science of sleep. So the science of play, and I'm not a science, but. Uh, Dr. Stuart Brown, who's a, a leader in this area, He's, he helps teach the class and has been studying play as, from the science point of view his whole life. Uh, and then different behaviors. So we use a lot of um, role-playing when we're interviewing people or, or pretending we're something, a lot of role-playing. We use a lot of exploratory play for ideation. And then we use a, a lot of constructive play when we're prototyping. So those behaviors are enjoyable for us. We want to keep doing it. So and, and then you can think of Play is, is your playground. Is this a safe place to uh, uh, innovate in? Is it okay to take a risk and have a terrible idea that you don't know is a terrible idea? So, but you're not going to get like chewed out. Um, uh, so, yeah. What
0: kind of projects? Uh,
1: Did you, I, oh, 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 yeah. So in my class, uh, um, we always try to get some corporate partners. We had some really great ones. We had Anheuser Busch. Uh, how to make the designated driver role the fun role or the cool role. That's a that, great That was one. <laughs> really interesting. It turned out a lot of people want to be the designated driver, some of the insights, but they were afraid to admit it because then they weren't cool, right? So that was cool. Um, oh, one team had a fabulous solution, well, at least I thought so. You buy a 24-pack, and they're just color-coded, uh, four, four colors. And one of the colors is non-alcoholic. So you're playing a game, and you have to figure out who's... The, who's not <laughs> drunk, and that person's trying to act drunk.
0: So. <laughs> uh,
1: you're drunk. No, you are. Uh, um, we had
0: uh,
1: we had a really delightful one with Scholastic on how to make lifelong readers. If you think about books and how how few books everyone's reading pads and other things, uh, uh, I kind of think the last real book would be a kid's book, right? Uh, and there's some great insights on that project around um, so many parents stop reading to their kids once their kid can start reading. Because hey, kid can read, I don't need to read to them anymore. Uh, versus it is really a beneficial to keep reading for as long as that kid will let you read and you can discuss and change the content out to you know, something higher. Uh, we had Visa all around how to, I called it, I didn't even know they had a term for it, but I approached them about making budgeting more playful. <coughs> And they said, "Oh yeah, we have a financial literacy department," which sounded that doesn't sound playful, right? Like, so <clears throat> that was interesting. Uh, yeah, so it's that type of real world, real world projects. Kind of
0: but stuff. isn't that so f- interesting that the idea that you can make anything fun, right? <coughs> you can make it engaging, right? Like,
1: so if it's more engaging, you'll have better loyal customers. If it's interesting and you want to come back for it, it it's all around uh, that. Like, does does this pull you in? Is it? delightful? Is it surprising? Is there something there that makes you want to keep doing it? Um, Great.
0: In a couple minutes, I'm going to open up to questions to the audience so you can start thinking about the fun questions that you have. Um, I also love the book you wrote with John Cassidy about basically an invention. Uh, can, you, can you talk a little yeah, bit about that? Yeah.
1: John Cass, uh, Cass is helping in the class too. He's awesome. He's the founder of Klutz. <laughs> and a lot of you guys probably grew up with Klutz books. He kind of invented this concept of books plus Uh, books plus juggling books plus other stuff Um, and Cass and I uh, wrote this book called the klutz book inventions and it was all around this concept um, to get brilliant ideas you have to be really comfortable with ridiculous ones so the guy who first invented the wheel probably people thought that's stupid what do we need that for Uh, um, so uh, so we we brainstormed thousands of ideas, we prototyped 162 of them, and then photographed them and put them in the book. So we built all these crazy things. And the front of the book talks about how to um, think like an inventor, and the last couple pages talk about process. And it's perfect if you're 10 years old or you like to feel like you're 10 years old. Because you're 10 years old, you have enough life experience so you um, think, uh, you kind of know what's going on, yeah. but you're still very optimistic. You want flying cars and other things <laughs> in, the, in the future. So. Um, <clears throat> You know, there's one one of my favorites for the 10-year-old. There's a pull-down, kind of like a um, blind, but it's got a perfect photograph of your room completely made up and looking <laughs> perfect. So, so mom walks by, hey, it looks good. <clears throat> for adults, there's one, if you've ever gotten a parking ticket at Stanford, no one's ever gotten that, right? Um, so the, how do you put uh, some delight back into a parking ticket? So we came up with this idea of a, scr- a scratch-off parking ticket. Oh. So it was like... Uh, <laughs> We owe you the fine, uh, you know. So, <laughs> so like, you could take a little risk in there, and a uh, double the fine, right? But it was like. <coughs> uh, so, and someone from a city municipality came up to me uh, after a talk and said, "You know, that would probably work if you do the math. People, yeah. you give enough discounts because people from out of town throw away tickets, and they, it's hard to collect, right?" Yeah. So. Um, we had one, if you ever had a broken arm or a sling, it had a pictogram of uh, like a shark biting you or fall, falling <laughs> off a ladder. Um, so yeah, and then we had all these things built and when people would walk through on tours of idea, they'd think, what the heck, this is crazy. But um, yeah, uh, otherwise, uh, but again, f- folks who have had brilliant ideas and gone and started amazing companies will tell you stories how folks said it was ridiculous. There are amazing stories around that, right? Like, well, so
0: this is really important. So you come up with all these ideas really crazy ideas, at what point do you say it's actually not so crazy?
1: <clears throat> well, we said that in the book. We said, if, if you take any of these, send us some money. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, <laughs> it's up to you. We don't care. No, what, uh, what, what we did get is literally, the book did really well. It's like 300,000 copies or something. But we got hundreds and hundreds of drawings of inventions from kids of these really cool, delightful things. So they're thinking and they're drawing. I love that they're physically drawing because I think that's just a, trait of creative people, they don't have to draw wonderfully, but they just like to draw something, so the back of the napkin stuff. So getting inspiring some of the next generation around inventors is, is, really, <laughs> is really great.
0: Great. Well, let's see what inspiring questions we have. Who has a question? Yes. Um, how do you deal with being stuck? So the question <coughs> is, how do you deal with being stuck? Yeah. Uh,
1: I think there's a lot for me, and uh, I'm encouraging my team, is this mind body connection. So uh, go for a run, go for a walk. But we're built to move, and there's something about not moving enough that I think doesn't help. So, you know, folks who are uh, fidgeters like to fidget and they like to move. But so getting out and going for a walk or you know, we, we have our friend Fern who her meeting is basically walking the dish, right? So it's getting that movement, I think, helps, helps get unstuck. Great. Yes. So uh, I have a kid. Mm-hmm. I'm curious about how both you and the <coughs> toy manufacturers balance, you know, the play and the fun <coughs> with parental goals like fostering non cognitive skills or uh, encouraging little girls to go into science, right? So I love when people buy toys, trust me, and I'll argue a toy is a tool, but I will coach any parent to go get a giant refrigerator box and play and and spend time with your kid, um, be with your kid and do stuff you enjoy. They'll sense your enjoyment and get that passion and figure out, oh, that's that's neat, I want to do something like that, whether it's that exact thing, but they'll sense what you like. Versus trying to give them all these different things, like i got to put them in everything. If you actually, Stuart Brown, Dr. Brown, he's, he says it's something a twinkle in the eye, the kids recognize that, and they sense that engagement, that passion. So try, that's all I can say. You could just sell refrigerators. <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, Great. Similar to that question, how do you simultaneously get product market fit with the child who's going to be using the toy and with the parent who's going to be buying it? And are those always... No. no. I'm gonna repeat the question. <clears throat> yeah. Just so everyone hears it. So your customer is both the kid and the parent, right? And so the question is, who are you really selling to, the kid or the parent? And are they different?
1: Yeah, it depends so much on age. Like people try to lump kids into all age, like a eight year old to a four year old, eight year olds twice as much life. When a three year old says I'm three and a half, that's a big deal. I don't. A forty-year-old doesn't say I'm forty-four and a half, right? Like that's not. Um, so, so understanding what age range is in there. So for preschoolers, you're really targeting the mom and, and the dad. Uh, but and then when they get a little bit older, then that kid has so much more say, and that they want that. They want that. Uh, when they get older, a little bit older, they're making car choices. They, they're, they're, you know, We've seen tweens making the car choice, telling we we want this one. So it really depends on the age of the child. And then it also depends on is it first child or second child, too, because there's so many different dynamics happening in that. But understanding those forces, that we, we have what we call kind of the Spongebob effect on some things. Mom doesn't really know what it is, but she knows it's not terrible, but, uh, but 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 it, the kid really wants it because it's kind of edgy, right? So that SpongeBob effect just sort of keeps going up. And then mom starts to get more and more nervous, uh, depending on what what age it's at. <laughs> so. Good question. Great.
0: Yes. You mentioned that you document all the ideas and you generate a lot of ideas. How do you manage that? And do you have a mechanism to revisit an idea? No. Right, so I'm here, here. Okay. okay. Please. Okay. So um, you get all these ideas. How do you capture them? How do you store them? How do you manage basically your yeah. entire collection <clears throat> of ideas?
1: So, we, say we, great question. So say we do a brainstorm where we have 100 ideas. We'll quickly vote on the ones that we think have merit. So that might be 5 to 10. The rest of the ideas we're not going to capture. We literally are going to let them fall to the floor. They're not important to us because we can do another brainstorm, and those ideas uh, will be more relevant than keeping all the old ideas. It's just too much. And, so, and they're really just an inkling of idea. They're more like a headline. You're going to have to push those further. So the, once, once they uh, become something that we're going to prototype, then we're going to capture it, and we have a database, and you know, the videos, and photographs, all that kind of stuff. But people treat all ideas as equal, and they're not. They just like quickly decide which ones you need to elevate, which are rising, and let the rest fall. In addition to uh, just observing children, as you mentioned, what ways do you kind of get in the mindset of uh, young children or kind of what
0: they're interested in and what they would like to do? Yes. So that's
1: interesting. Yeah, you want to repeat it?
0: Yes, I, I need to for the podcast. Okay. So um, how do you get into the right mindset, like the kids' mindset to get ready to design for them?
1: Yeah, it's, we did a product a while back with Fisher-Price called Jumperoo, which took the, uh, took the for parents, it took the one that hung in the doorframe and made it a freestanding one. Because uh, the door frame one was great. My son used it. Uh, but moms thought the thing was going to fall down if you lived in a small apartment, it actually blocked a key pathway. <clears throat> and then this is a while. This is over 10 years ago, maybe more. And, and YouTube was just coming online. I, I thought it would be interesting to um, search Jumperoo. And there were something like 12,000 individual Jumperoo videos because parents were so excited to see their kid jumping up and down. So that was like, wow, we can do some insights work just by... You know, uh, looking online, which is interesting. So, the, but the mindset is to um, constantly be, uh, kind of keep a heartbeat of seeing, and we have a database of kid testers, and which we gotta keep current, because kids get older and they're out of the database. So um, keeping, uh, <clears throat> keeping current with that, keeping time in, in homes and, and relevant. We find a lot of parents think they're experts on kids, but what they are experts on their kids because they don't spend enough time. So I have a lot of folks in the toy lab who don't have kids, but they are experts on kids because they're spending a lot of time and they have a sense of what's happening. Great. Yes. So I'm just wondering, because you said play is an engagement, and I think it's very encouraging to be in that kind of um, environment. So you get to create stuff, and I understand that's a part of ideal's culture. However, I had like in this summer I had a chance to um, teach some of the students from China, and then one challenge I face is because um, I heard some of the students complains is okay, I enjoy this environment a lot, but when I go back. A lot of teacher might just pull me down, and say, hey, there's black and white. I'm just wondering, <coughs> yeah. uh, from you, how would you encourage that? So, really good question, really challenging. We see this in company cultures. Like, uh, we come over here, and we get to do all this stuff, and then we go back there, and it's not. So, one is to either try to change that, and we encourage you to try little experiments and do things, or get out of that, you know, because you can't uh, you go find somewhere else. If, if you're in a culture that just won't accept it, and that's not a fit for you, and you don't want that, For students, uh, you know, I think it's just sort of like, sometimes if you're the only creative person, you might shine a little bit more, but that's a really tough challenge, and I'm not sure I know how to handle that, except have them come to Stanford more often.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Great. Back there. To to your point about the mind-body connection and stuckness, have you explored, just like physical environments, ways that people could actually be physically moving in the moment to get unstuck? And, uh, what yeah. Are, so the question is, are there very specific things you can do physically in the moment to get unstuck?
1: Physically. Yeah, you can, um, you can hold your hands like this. Everyone do this. <laughs> and then you can make a big figure eight. Everyone, for our podcast, we're, making, we're holding our, clasping our hands, and we're making a big figure eight, so you can do this online. <laughs> we should
0: make a video. <clears throat>
1: And this, we're not going to do it that long. This
0: <laughs> I've been told
1: this connects your right and left brain together because right. you're circling across. So if there are any scientists in the room who <laughs> want to prove that, you can... That's you a can, good question.
0: We'll, can, do, we'll do a but PET I, I, scan while we
1: do it. Uh, I had a, a former TA who came into my class, and then uh, she gave a real simple... This is She's repeating someone else's work, but she gave a real simple uh, brainstorm topic and. and teams of two came up with ideas. Then she made everyone run around the D school. Then we did a similar topic, and it was like 23% more ideas or something. And they, It's not the perfect case, but she's trying to illustrate, and people felt a little more, you know. so some type of burst in making it acceptable in the culture. So it's like, you know. I, I, yeah, what are, it, your,
0: what are your favorite, besides <clears throat> figure eights, what are your favorite warm-up activities?
1: <clears throat> this one's really good. I, I make my students do this one. So it put both feet on the ground flat, and then take your right foot and circle it in a clockwise manner. Everyone play along. Keep circling in a clockwise manner. Take your right hand, hold it up high, and then draw a big number six. Keep circling clockwise.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: this, is from, this is from John Cassidy's um, uh, book of uh, immaturity. But, yeah, all right, stop doing it now. <laughs> but what I tell my students is um, if you think you can multitask, you can't. Because you do two things worse. So you can do one of these, I can do this, but you try to do them together. So that—that's my lesson out of it. But <laughs> I'm trying to get people not to I agree. screen well, time. I loosened
0: us up. Yeah. Great. More ideas. Great.
1: When you were talking about brainstorming, one of the things that I thought was interesting was that once you start brainstorming, you don't assign ideas to any one person. Like they belong to the group. But there are also times in a career, especially earlier on, where you want to be recognized for good ideas that you're coming up with. So how should like a young professional balance being a team player and being creative with getting credit for what they're coming up
0: with? So the with? question is that balance between being a team player and getting credit for the work. I mean, if you're if you're constantly giving everybody else credit, how do you get recognition for your ideas?
1: That's a really good question. I. There's a book I read called The Art of Possibilities, which is by uh, a couple. The uh, Yeah, Xander is a, the Boston Philharmonic. Uh, con- Benjamin Xander, the conductor, and his wife who's a um, psych- psychiatrist. And he has one chapter in there about contribution. And it's just like, if you're going to contribute, 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 it's going to come back to you. Somehow it's, it just doesn't feel like it will, but it will. So if you get in that m- mindset or that mode and you're known as the person who's helping everyone else out, I think it's going to come back to you. Or you're going to get such a good idea you're just going to start your own company. You <laughs> won't need credit. So um, you'll be giving everyone else credit. Um, I think that's a lot of what Stanford coaches is. We make great employers, right? Like, so, um, <clears throat> so, But it's, it, I find that it's just more enjoyable. than kind of, Or hopefully you got a business lead who's looking out for you, right? And that kind of stuff, so... Yeah. Great. Yes. How do you toe the line between ridiculousness and feasibility? Mm-hmm.
0: How do you toe the line between <clears throat> ridiculousness and feasibility?
1: Uh, yeah, at some point you can converge, and then you can have a manufacturing engineer in the room. You can have all sorts of folks who can, or uh, you know, any type of adult in the room who said this is not possible. And then uh, either you're going to, we're going to, someone who's really excited about it's going to push back and make it possible, or, or it'll, get, it'll fall to the floor. But the risk is not being in that realm and just playing it safe too much and you won't you won't get to something that's interesting.
0: Well, so knowing that you're going to have to build it, does it ever inhibit your ideas?
1: Sometimes it, it will, but sometimes people want the challenge because they're comfortable in building something they thought they couldn't build before and they want that feeling again. So it, it or it seeks them out to ask some other help, some other expert, so sometimes uh, like it's, if it's too much, like this is going to like be a transporter, we we can't build that yet. But yeah, it, it's challenging. It, it's a really good question. Like, where do we put our resources? Because most of, everything we're working on, we we haven't sold. We, we have no guarantees. So it's do we we're going to invest heavy into this, or are we going to pull back? Cool. Yes. You
0: mentioned the short lifespan of toys in
1: general, uh, which probably translates to a lot of toys ending up in landfills um, or being thrown away once they've been played with for a year or two. How do you think about sort of the waste you're creating potentially and do you ever think about trying to design for longer lifespans? I mean, the same applies for sort of gadgets for adults. I think
0: this is the big issue. So the question is, okay, these toys have a really short lifespan and they end up in the landfills. How do you think about the responsibility of you know, basically adding to the piles of junk?
1: So, really great question. And um, do you still have any of your favorite toys? Maybe a couple stuffed animals. Okay. Okay. So, I, I'm curious if any Legos have actually ever gotten thrown out. So, <laughs> so uh, I had to stop asking my class, what's your favorite toy? Because I knew it was going to be Lego, so I had to go to the second one. So, I think a, a lot of toys actually get saved or passed down. They, they go fast just because the marketplace is hungry to sell something different. It's like a movie. There's always new movies. We don't just keep watching the same movie because there's, you know, and kids. So it's, it's some of that. Um, so my hope is we're building playthings that are going to last. But, yeah, it, it, sometimes stuff isn't. The companies we work at actually have high quality. They're making a lot of good stuff. I get depressed when I walk into, like, a CVS and I see these junky toys that are basically, we call them plastic by the pound. And that's not stuff we work on. It's just, so I'm with you on that. So that's where I'd rather n- not have a toy in that case, go do something else. Great. Um, in a culture that's comfortable with failure, what do you do with people with teams that aren't performing? Or is that <coughs> not something
0: that Great, so in a culture that is comfortable with failure, how do you actually deal with teams that are not performing?
1: Yeah, so I think then they need to reevaluate what their goals are, what their objectives are, are they working together? Can we, basically it's like we want to help that team, right? Because other teams might remember when they had some humble time. So it, it's what's wrong, it's kind of like fixing a, a sport team. What are you gonna do to make it better versus like, um, you know, let them go or something. So I think it's a lot around training and a lot around um, best practices, so. Uh, I'd have to dive in deeper to see exactly, but my guess is it's around training and best practices. Great. So I'm 23 years old. Maybe I'm a Stanford undergrad, or maybe I was at Michigan State, came here got my master. <laughs> How would you evaluate whether I was a good fit for IDEO?
0: So the question is, I've just come out of school. How does IDEO decide if someone's a good fit for their firm?
1: Yeah, well, I, well,
0: actually, a little more
1: specifically, yes. how would you, Brendan, yeah. evaluate? <laughs> how would I evaluate myself? How would I evaluate myself? No, oh. how
0: would you evaluate that? A candidate. How do you evaluate candidates? Undergraduates.
1: Yeah, well, the undergrads are becoming better and better here. It's just amazing how I, I the D school is supposed to be grads only, but I try to sneak in undergrads. Don't tell anyone um, <laughs> if you're an undergrad. But... Um, <clears throat> For me, it's really hard for me to interview someone uh, that hasn't been a student. So the student's one thing. But the other thing we do is when we have that 23-year-old come over, um, we'll put him with the team for a day and put him in a brainstorm and have him make something. And and So uh, then the team starts to see, uh, is there potential here? Can we we, uh, apprentice this person along and that type of thing? So. So
0: it is really an apprenticeship. When someone comes in, they get brought up to speed.
1: Oh, yeah. Definitely, they're going to be paired with one of the senior, more senior um, toy inventors and they're going to teach them some of these techniques and show show them the ropes and that kind of stuff.
0: Great, super. Yes? When you
1: think of someone who isn't naturally creative, how do you foster creativity? Yeah, so who thinks you're naturally creative? Raise your hand. All right, it's something funny. Like, If I said, who thinks you're a really good driver? People, yeah, I'm the worst. <laughs> I'm awesome. But there's something around creativity where we feel a little bit humble, even if we feel like we're creative, because we might lose it You know, if I start. So uh, creativity for us isn't like you're born with it. We think it's a muscle. And if you're a tennis player and you keep practicing, you'll get better at it. You may not be world class, but you could get pretty good. So we think people feel they're not creative because, they haven't been practicing it. And usually what happens, you're in the fourth, fifth grade, and you're pretty good at drawing, and your teacher says, you're really creative. And then you start to feel creative, and then that keeps building. So this is what's really fun at the D school. When people get there, they start to realize, I am creative. It wasn't that I wasn't. It was just blocked. So, so helping people realize that and giving them tools and, and, and allowing them to practice that muscle. Um,
0: so I'm going to build on that by asking the final question. So imagine, flashback, you're now sitting in this classroom. You're a graduate student or undergrad. What advice do you wish someone had given you when you were that age? I'd say,
1: wow, that's a great question. Um, I'd say get really good at at your craft, at the I in your T-shape, but be interested in everything else. Uh, But figure out what you could get in the door with, because you're really good at this. But be interested in outside. I, I love when people tell us about their hobbies because their hobbies start to really say where their, where their interests are and, and their secret sort of uh, resources for us, what people's hobbies are. Um, so IDEO is really interested in everyone's hobby because they'll find out, oh, you're, you're interested in that? We'll put you on that kind of project. So, but figure out what that craft is and, uh, and understand it. And then if you're interested in an industry or an area, go deep on the history and, and sort of understand it, not just like that company you're interviewing today. Like, what's this industry's history and, you know, um, yeah, so. Well,
0: this was incredibly inspiring. Please join me. And thank you, Brendan. Thank you, guys. You have been listening to the Draper Fisher-Jervison Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program.